Proverbs chapter 31. We'll begin this evening in verse 10 and read all the way through to the end of the chapter once again. Brethren, let us hear the Word of God. Who can find a virtuous woman? For her price is far above rubies. The heart of her husband doth safely trust in her, so that he shall have no need of spoil. She will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. She seeketh wool and flax and worketh willingly with her hands. She is like the merchant's ships. She bringeth her food from afar. She riseth also while it is yet night and giveth meat to her household and a portion to her maidens. She considereth a field and buyeth it. With the fruit of her hands she planteth a vineyard. She girdeth her loins with strength and strengtheneth her arms. She perceiveth that her merchandise is good. Her candle goeth not out by night. She layeth her hands to the spindle, and her hands hold the distaff. She stretcheth out her hand to the poor, yea, she reacheth forth her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household are clothed with scarlet. She maketh herself coverings of tapestry. Her clothing is silk and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sitteth among the elders of the land. She maketh fine linen and selleth it and delivereth girdles unto the merchant. Strength and honor are her clothing and she shall rejoice in time to come. She openeth her mouth with wisdom and in her tongue (coughs) excuse me, is the law of kindness. She looketh well to the ways of her household, and eateth not the bread of idleness. (coughs) Her children arise and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praiseth her. Many daughters have done virtuously, but thou excellest them all. Favor is deceitful, and beauty is vain. But a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands, and let her own works praise her in the gates. Amen. As the Word of God has so clearly set before us, a virtuous woman, an excellent wife, is worth more than priceless rubies. Rubies, emeralds, and many other Jewels were extremely rare, and that's what made them so valuable. And rubies were especially valued in the day that this was written, as they still are. Now, we have considered together that a virtuous woman is priceless because of what she is and because of what she does. In these things, she is as rare as the rubies that were so rare in the day that this scripture was given to us. Now, we've spent several weeks considering those two notions. When we first opened up this passage, we said that we would consider the virtuous woman under the basic uh, three sections that this portion Uh, neatly divides into. And the first two are what she is and what she does. 
<clears throat> we had one more head to consider, and that and that is a virtuous woman is priceless because of whom she serves. She is priceless because of what she is, a woman born of God's Spirit, whose faith is in the Most High God. And that faith expresses itself in the things that are set before us in this passage. And that brings us to the third heading, which we uh, bring to the forefront tonight, and we're going to give this a new title. We're going to be considering that a priceless woman is or, excuse me, a virtuous woman is priceless because of whom she serves. But we're going to uh, give this next few messages a a new title. And it will be, A Woman That Feareth the Lord. A Woman That Feareth the Lord. That is taken from verse 30, near the end of this passage. A woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. And we will take several messages to consider the following three things, just like we did the other three things. First, the definition of a virtuous woman's godly fear. Secondly, the manifestation of a virtuous woman's godly fear. And thirdly, the fruit of a virtuous woman's godly fear. Now, in this message, we will only consider the first point and divide it into three sections. <clears throat> you study the Puritans a great deal. You tend to think in heads, subsections, sub-subsections, and uh, more subsections. And I'm afraid that my mind seems to run in those patterns. But I don't think that that's necessarily artificial. I do seem to find biblical thought often laid out that way. Not always in groups of three, but certainly primary thought broken up into its various components and elements. And I I certainly find that in the passage that we consider this evening as we come at the first head, the definition of a virtuous woman's godly fear. May the Lord be pleased to help us consider this most important subject. What does the inspired writer, what does God intend for us to understand when we read that a woman that feareth the Lord shall be praised. What do we mean by her fearing the Lord? And we want to think of these three things this evening. First, where true virtue is not found. Where true virtue is not found. Secondly, we want to consider where true virtue is found. And finally... We want to consider how true virtue is found. And this whole notion is rooted in the fear of the Lord. 
As I said in our opening study, and uh, it's probably good for me to remind you from time to time throughout these, these are basically loosely structured studies. They're not intended to be a a verse-by-verse, word-by-word exposition of this particular passage, but we do come to it opening up some of the precious treasures that are here. And uh, the more I have spent uh, this time studying this passage, I've never been so gripped in all of my days with the depth of what is actually here. And it has provoked me to consider uh, someday in the future doing a very careful and close exposition of this whole passage, uh, working through it verse by verse and seeing how it stretches out into uh, all of the Scripture and, uh, because of that, into all of life. So, with that in mind, where is this true virtue, this fear of the Lord, found? Well, we want to begin with the negative, where it's not found. Where it's not found. You'll notice that verse 30 begins by saying, Favor is deceitful, and beauty is vain. And immediately, if we think about this, if we meditate on this, and if we've read the Scripture very much, we find ourselves facing some difficulties. Favor is deceitful, and beauty is vain. We must ask again, what does heaven want us to understand from this passage? Why this particular choice of words? Well, the first thing we need to recognize is that in Hebrew thought, and if you will read the Scriptures carefully, you will see this very often, Things are said in by way of hyperbole. In order to make a point, something is said in an exaggerated way. Not exaggeration in the sense of lying or stretching the truth. But speaking in such a way and putting things in contrast in such a way that we see that they're very different things. Now you'll notice this if you read the Old Testament regularly. And carefully. And of course, it was the Lord Jesus Christ who brought these things to its clearest expression when he would teach his parables or when he would uh, speak to the crowds and he would make very, very powerful statements. Unless you hate your mother and your father, you can't follow me. We read that and, and we're bewildered. What do we mean? I thought the scriptures tell us to honor our father and mother. Why is Jesus Christ Himself telling us to hate them? Well, it's because this is Hebrew thought. It's inspired thought. It's a way of taking and contrasting things to jar our minds and make us think and make us contrast those things. And unfortunately, uh, in, in English, modern English especially, if we don't carefully look through the way Scripture uses language, we will force it to try to run along the patterns of modern English. And we miss the point. And that's very often what has happened. Even in the last several hundred years, as I think that we'll see as we look, the Lord is not telling us here that charm 
in and of itself is something wrong. The word can also, that's translated favor here, can also be translated grace. For a woman to be gracious, for a woman to be graceful, for a woman to be charming in the proper sense, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing sinful. Beauty is not something wrong. We have to ask ourselves, what are we being told? Are we reading a biblical rejection of charm and grace? Uh, Shall women just be rough and tough like men? What's deceitful about it? Beauty. Is beauty a bad thing? Beauty is vain. Brethren, I've heard messages where men get up well-intentioned and they virtually berate every woman in the congregation that's attempted to adorn herself for her husband. Now, can it be done wrong? Sure. Can it be done pridefully? Yes. Can it be done sensually? Of course. Can the notion be abused? It's abused every day. No one's arguing that. But is the Scripture telling us that beauty, beauty in and of itself is wrong? And it's not. It's not telling us that. Unfortunately, this is how many have interpreted it over the years. But if we compare Scripture with Scripture... If we don't just get isolated on one or two, quote, proof texts, and if we don't take them and immediately ram them into the blender of modern English, and and if we learn to think biblically, then we begin to understand the point a little bit better. Now, on the surface, the words seem plain enough. Favor is deceitful. Beauty is vain. And uh, I've, I've heard it said, and no doubt others will think, ah, oh, he's gone the path of the liberals, as he says the things he's about to say. But we do have to look at the, the large picture. Brethren, if we compare passage with passage throughout the Word of God, we find beauty often commended. <clears throat> now, I'm not talking about false and in and of itself, painted on beauty. And we have to learn to discern those things because unfortunately, in our society, all of you women have been reared to be uh, artificially enhanced in your beauty in numerous ways. Because you've got to look like the cover of these magazines or you're not beautiful. Right? Right? So we do want to take these things apart carefully, and we will look at this in more detail in some of our messages coming ahead, and especially when we get to our exposition of the pastoral epistles. We will take some of these things on in greater detail. But tonight, let us simply wrap this particular thought up with these uh, these following notions. First, if we go to the Song of Solomon, equally inspired by the Word of God, we have the husband admiring and loving his wife's beauty and virtually gushing about it. 
and, and being in a mixed company as we are, I want to be as delicate and careful as I can be. But what we have is the husband enjoying seeing his wife and her beauty. Now, it's expressed in ways that we perhaps might not think uh, as being beautiful in, in our particular Western thought. And not too many of us are uh, ready to tell our wives with great passion that their hair uh, looks like a flock of goats. Uh, that might not be received well. Uh, but the, the point is that he looks at her feet. He looks at her ankles. He looks at her whole body. He looks at the, all of her anatomy. He says, you're beautiful. You're beautiful. And the, and the Word of God doesn't say that this is wrong. And it's quite clear that she uh, adorns herself and anoints herself for him. The notion that all adornment is wrong is simply not found in the Word of God. I've been in camps that taught that. And I bought that notion for some time until I continued reading carefully through God's Word. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. First Timothy chapter 2. We see in verse 9, "...in like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women, professing godliness, with good works." Now, this has been used to say that if a woman wears any kind of physical adornment, that she is prideful, that she's a harlot. Now, Again, we have to be very careful. We don't want to rebound 180 degrees on the other side and fall into error on the opposite end. What Paul is saying is that her beauty is not to be found in and of itself in external things. Notice, it doesn't say... Uh, if you, in fact, if you go into the Old Testament, you will find that God gloriously speaks of Israel and says, I took you and I grew you up and you matured and you became beautiful. And he goes through all of the adornments that he puts on her. Necklaces and bracelets. Now, if that in and of itself means something wicked, then we have God telling us that we're not to do one thing while he uses that as an example for us in another. That doesn't make any sense. And it is because it's easy to focus on words and, and beat them to death without looking at them in an overall biblical way. Now, we're not saying that, that uh, it's just quite alright for women to wear anything they want, to put on, paint on anything they want. We're not saying that in the slightest. But we're, not, we're, we're also not throwing adornment out altogether because of a couple of misused verses. We find the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 3. 
It says, whose adorning, verse 3 of chapter 3, let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair or of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel. But let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. Now, there are moments I have no greater respect for men that have lived on the planet than the godly Puritans. And uh, many of them are men that I have a deep and abiding affection for. But there are moments where they come to passages like this and I believe they actually go too far. I love their zeal. But we must all be careful that we compare Scripture with Scripture and not simply react to abuses which we're all given to do. If you will notice, it says, whose adorning, let it not be, and then the last phrase is, putting on of apparel. Is he telling us, look, don't clothe yourself with clothes. We'd be in the middle of a very serious problem, would we not? What's he saying? This is not what your beauty lies in. It is not an absolute prohibition of all of these items. Or he'd be prohibiting clothes here. That doesn't make any sense. Why? Well, because for one thing, we don't think like Jews. And one of the reasons that we don't is because we are very ignorant of the Old Testament and its idioms. And the way that God speaks to us. You say, well, why didn't he just give us something like the Living Bible? Well, you take that up with him. <laughs> he gave it to us in Hebrew and in Greek. And the very faithful translation from my perspective, and not all will agree with me on this, are those which most faithfully wrap the English around the Hebrew and the Greek so that we're getting the thought of the Hebrew and the Greek, which God inspired. And of course, that means that times we'll have to wrestle more with meaning. But that's how God gave it. And I'm satisfied to go on with the wrestling and the struggling to understand God's Word. Now, before any of you think that I've gone completely, uh, again, uh, liberal, I, I'm, I'm not saying that this is a wholehearted, uh, ladies, wear anything. I'm not saying that. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying uh, uh, that just anything that you want to uh, hang on you uh, is okay. And I'm certainly not saying that any or everything that you paint on you is all right. We'll get to that in greater detail and another time in this series of studies. Leave it simply at this tonight. When we come to these passages, what we're being told is that the vital thing that the Word of God considers as beauty for a woman is what she is in her faith towards God. And it is not to be found, as women are uh, wont to think, and as men, unfortunately, promote because of their own lustful weaknesses, their outward appearance. 
there are those who have come to the conclusion that uh, the the obvious way then, you know, for, for women to, to dress is to be as plain as they can possibly be. And we don't hear God saying that. We do not find that in the way that He even speaks of His own bride. And we'll look at that in greater detail again when we make this a subject of several messages. All we want to get to this evening is for our purposes to realize that true virtue that comes from the fear of the Lord is not found in external things. It is not found in external things. If you are spending more time adorning yourself than feeding your soul and adorning your life with obedience to Christ, you are in violation of what he's talking about here. God Himself adorns His bride and the picture is given in Scripture externally. But this is not where her true beauty is found. So, if we see and understand this principle, then when we look at verse 30, favor is deceitful. It lies. Charm charm lies. And beauty is Vain. The word vain there means empty. It means fleeting. It literally means breath and is translated that way in several several places. Beauty is breath. What's he saying? A man that is attracted simply to the external things of a woman is fooled because those things pass away. Ladies, no doubt, those of you that are a bit more mature in your age and have had several children and you go back and you look at those wedding pictures, you go back and you look at that time before you were married and you you realize how radically you've changed? If you are beautiful from the soul, beautiful in good works, beautiful in the worship of your God, you will still be lovely to your husband, even though your outward beauty is fading away. It is. All those wrinkles are saying, (laughs) not quite, what you used to be. And as the sags begin to come that everyone in Hollywood has to find an expensive doctor to tweak and to nip and to tuck away. We don't spend money on that. We don't throw away the Lord's money on that. We go the way of all the earth. Beauty is breath. It's fleeting. Outward beauty passes away. 
A woman that invests her life in external beauty is a deceiver. That's what, that's what we're talking about. Charm is deceitful. It doesn't mean if you are a charming hostess <laughs> that there is somehow some kind of lie or deceit or something wrong with that. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, be careful. Something that appears charming, it's a lie. If that's all it is. Some of you were married not more than a few days, some of you men, and you realized, hmm, Perhaps she's a little moodier than I thought she was at one time. Ladies, have you ever lost your charm in front of your husbands? Have you spoken ungraciously to them? Have you spoken uncharmingly to them at some time? Before you got married, were you doing everything you could to hold forth your best? And now that you're married, do you find it a little easier sometimes not to be so charming? If all it is is external, it's a lie. This is what we're being told. If your beauty is painted on, it's just breath. And even if you are naturally endowed by your Maker to where you're one of those people who are just absolutely stunningly beautiful without any Ornamentation. That hair is going to get snowy someday. And that beautiful spotless skin is going to wrinkle and sag. And gravity is going to have its way. And your body is just not going to look the same. It's a breath. If this is your beauty, you're a deceiver and vain. Because this is going to go away. This doesn't mean that it is sinful for you to dress in a way that is attractive to your husband, neat, clean, well-ordered, as we will talk about in several of our future studies. But we'll wrap up this part by saying what we're being told in the infinite wisdom of God is that favor, charm, is a lie. If that's all it is on the outside, if it's just external, the man that's drawn to this, will find himself deceived. And beauty is empty. It passes. Most of what is held forth to us in our media-saturated culture and our immoral and licentious and lascivious saturated culture it's not real. As I have said before, you walk by these lines in the market, you're going through the checkout line, and you've got this leering bunch of 
half-naked individuals always, and most of the vast majority of them women. And most of them, I mean, as I have said before, and as I will always say, because I especially want the young ladies to hear and know this, those women don't look like that. They don't look like that. They've been painted, airbrushed, nipped, tucked, vacuumed. And as I have been known to say, many of them have more silicone in them than a computer. This is deceit. This is a cheat. This is a lie. This is vanity. This is error. And it is not for God's women. And if men didn't want their women to look this way, and if they didn't succumb to them this way, most of them wouldn't go to all the trouble. Now you ladies know, you grew up around women who knew early on how their looks affected men. And they spent their time working on it so that men would look at them. That's a cheat. And this is what we're being told. But a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. A woman that feareth the Lord. So we want to look where true virtue is found. If it's not found in all these false things, if it's not just in external things only, then where is it genuinely found? Our passage says, in the fear of the Lord. There is stunning and eternal beauty. A beauty that cannot be lost. And while the age spots creep into that lovely skin, and you show all the signs of going the way of all the earth, the fear of the Lord will make you lovely in the eyes of heaven and in the eyes of any godly man. Now, let me put a footnote to what I'm saying. Any of you young women, to think that the way to get a man is by external beauty, you will get what you want. And you will regret it. Men that only desire you for your external beauty are shallow. And selfish. Now, we want to understand then what fear of the Lord is. If this is the heart and soul of true beauty, what in the world do we mean by that? Charles Bridges, who has that wonderful commentary on Proverbs, says, But what is this fear of the Lord? It is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his Father's law. That's a wonderful definition. <clears throat> it is that affectionate reverence. It's not a slavish fear. 
but it is a filial fear, a humble fear, a reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his Father's law. In other words, because of God's extraordinary grace, mercy, and love to us, and to you, sisters, you respond to Him in a holy reverence that does not want to sin against Him. It is a fear of sinning against a loving Father. Not a trembling that, "Uh uh-oh, I've messed up, now God's going to squash me. This is the way a lot of Christians live. And it's a wrong notion. You should fear His chastening hand when you knowingly live in rebellion against Him. But even then, that chastening, no matter how severe it may be, will be for one purpose. That is to restore an erring child to himself. Not to crush them. Now, Bridges goes on to say, quote, His wrath is so bitter and His love so sweet that hence springs an earnest desire to please Him. And because of the danger of coming short from His own weakness and temptations, a holy watchfulness and fear that He might not sin against Him. This enters into every exercise of the mind, every object of life. Close quote. That's a good way of expressing the fear of the Lord. That in every aspect, every avenue of life, we are so aware of God's holy love for us in Christ. And yet aware of the power of His chastening hand. That His love and wisdom in us reverences Him and wants to honor Him by not sinning against Him. And dear sisters, if this is your heart, you will be praised. You are indeed a virtuous woman. A woman who will be blessed by her family. More about that later. Let's stay on this notion of the wisdom of God for a few more minutes. Job chapter 28, verse 28, says, And unto man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to, to, and to depart from evil is understanding. That in itself is virtually an inspired summary of the entire book of Proverbs. That's the whole notion. Wisdom is not to be confused with having lots of Bible facts in your head. Wisdom is the conforming of the life, the application of God's truth to the heart in meditation and prayer, and the application to living your life. That's wisdom. 
There are loads of people who have bigger brains, bigger memories than you or me, and they are converted and they sit down and they, they devour lots of big books and they, they read lots of Scripture and they can memorize lots of things and they walk around spitting out uh, Bible verses like a shotgun. And yet if you watch them long enough, after a while you see they've got a lot of outward display like fireworks. But just like fireworks, there's a lot of noise and then nothing. I've unfortunately been impressed with people like that until the Lord let me live long enough to see that it's just like taking your money, buying a package of firecrackers, lighting them, throwing them out there, and they're great for a few minutes. And the light and the flashes and the sound and the noise, it's all great. And then it's gone. All up in smoke. And there's nothing valuable left. Wisdom is meditating on the Word of God and knowing it. Shaping the mind and the heart to think according to it. And then out of love for God, applying it, obeying it, bearing fruit in the life. There is wisdom. Wisdom is never simply a mental thing in the Scriptures. And especially in the Proverbs. It's not just a mental knowledge. It is the application to the life. Not just someone who can sit back and tell everybody else what to do. The application individually. Sisters, the fear of the Lord. That is wisdom. As Bridges says, it should affect all of the life. It should be it should enter into every exercise of the mind. God's holy word, his commandments, his truth, and then walking in it. When you obey the living God, out of love and response to His love. That is wisdom. And that is the fear of the Lord, according to the Word of God. We'll see it unfolded. Psalm 19, verse 9. Some of us knew this as a chorus in our earlier days as believers. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And then notice, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. In the keeping of them. Notice that in the midst of all of these words, law, testimony, statutes, commandment, and judgments, right in there is the fear of the Lord. It's not talking about a mental activity. It's not talking about a quaking in your boots. This is a natural context to say it. 
It means reverencing our God and walking in loving obedience to Him. This is not only wisdom, that's the fear of the Lord. An awesome reverence that wants to obey on one hand and eschews and fears disobedience on the other. This is in harmony with the notion that throughout Scripture, the love of God, the true worship of God, is manifested in obedience. Why did God say to Israel, you're gathering together, your feasts, it all stinks to me. I hate it. He had ordained those things. They were coming together. They were offering up their sacrifices. They were eating and having a great party. They were having a wonderful celebration. Why did God say, it's a stench. I despise it. It's abomination to me. Because they didn't love their God. And love in the Scripture means obedience from the heart. Obedience from the heart. It is the heart's response to the great God. This is not legalism. This is not works-oriented in the sense of merit. It's simply saying that the heart that loves God, the heart that fears the Lord in this sense, walks in His Word. Deuteronomy 6.2 says that thou mightest fear the Lord thy God to keep all His statutes and His commandments which I command thee, thou and thy son and thy son's son all the days of thy life and that thy days may be prolonged. That's certainly an external and an objective sense. But there's also an internal sense to this thing. I want to make sure that we understand that. Deuteronomy 6.5 says, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. The Lord Jesus Himself tells us in the New Testament that that means obeying the living God. It's an internal thing. If we truly love God, we will obey Him. That's the fear of the Lord. We can put it another way. It is, in this sense, covenant faithfulness. Not to be confused with the controversy that is taking place in a number of Reformed circles right now. But in the truest sense, it is a love of God and a faithful desire to walk in what His covenant calls us to. Now, in the Old Testament, they had the, the law... <clears throat> and we still have a high view of God's law. In the New Covenant, Christ Himself spoke in these same ways. John did as well. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. We're not obeying these things to be saved. We obey them because we are because it flows from a heart of love to that God. As our blessed Father, we bend ourselves, as Bridges says, in humility to His Word, to His law. That's the fear of the Lord. We see it again in Proverbs, 
110, excuse me, Psalm 110, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all they that do His commandments. Proverbs 1.7 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So, this notion of the fear of the Lord is not a slavish quaking in our boots waiting for God just to strike us. But it is a holy love that manifests itself in obedience. And the motivation for that holy love and obedience is His grace and mercy to us in Christ Jesus. Now let me get to the last part. It looks like someone came up here and ran my clock up. How is this true virtue found? Where is it found? If, if we can see that it's not in external beauty in and of itself, and that it is in the fear of the Lord, this holy wisdom that permeates all of life, a life out of love being shaped according to God's Word, where does that come from? Well, of course... You must be born of God. Except you have a new heart, you will never love His words. You might obey Him out of a fear of being cast into hell, but you will never obey Him because you love Him. You must be born of God. Proverbs chapter 2 tells us, verses 1 through 5, My son, if thou wilt receive my words and hide my commandments with thee, so that thou incline thine ear unto wisdom and apply thine heart to understanding, yea, if thou criest after knowledge and liftest up thy voice for understanding, if thou seek her as silver and searchest for her as for hid treasures, then shalt thou understand the fear of the Lord and the knowledge of God. Look at those powerful verbs. We could do a whole evening just on this. Receive. Receive what? My words. Now, this is the father instructing the child. And though it is a son in this particular context, of course it applies to all of God's children. It applies to you, dear sisters. And, and in the Old Testament, as well in the New, there is a hierarchy of understanding. There is a chain of command. There's the father who mediates things through the Son. God speaks from heaven and gives His Word. And therefore, the parents are to take the Word of God and mediate that to their children. Therefore, the children are to obey the parents. Because when the parents will, and when the parents' house rules and laws are built on the Word of God, then to disobey your parents is to disobey the living God. That's a very powerful point. My son, if thou wilt receive my words, the father says to his loving son. He's not talking about the stuff he spins out of his imagination. He's talking about the word of God. He says, I'm teaching you and I'm instructing you in practical wisdom that all flows out 
of a heart that's been saturated with God's law and God's holy word. And he says, and then if you hide my commandments with thee, remember them, memorize them, think on them. Don't just go, yes, sir, and then go out and do what you want to do. But hear them and take them in. Children, when your mom and your dad correct you, stop and think what they've told you. Don't just, oh, I'm going to be glad when this is all over. No. Fight your own wickedness and say, I want to hear what my parents are telling me because God has commanded them to instruct me and I need to hear what they're saying. And if it's in harmony with the Word of God, I want to do it. So that thou incline thine ear into wisdom. There's there's an issue of submission here. And listening. Listening to the text. Listening to the Word of God. Listening to the authorities that God has put over us. And apply thine heart to understanding. What does this mean to me? How do I live this? How do I hammer this out day by day? If thou seekest Excuse me, verse 3. If thou criest after knowledge and liftest up thy voice for understanding. This is prayer. Ladies, you will never know, you will never ingest the Word of God as you should unless you meet with your God in prayer. Meet with your God in prayer. Harvey Newcomb writes in his book, Young Lady's Guide, quote, Be much in prayer. Upon this will greatly depend your success in all things. Feel that of yourself you can do nothing, but that you can do all things through Christ strengthening you. Before undertaking anything, pray that God would give you wisdom to direct and strength to perform. And if it is anything in which the efforts of others will be required, pray that He would incline their hearts to engage in the work. Before you go out on an errand of mercy, first visit your closet and commit yourself to the direction of the Lord. Pray that He would give you wisdom courage and discretion and that he would and that he would keep down the pride of your heart and enable you to do all things for his glory close quote at the very heart of the fear of the lord is knowing your god and you will only know him in his word and in fervent prayer Ladies, before you give yourself to that same old chore again today, have you prayed? Do you pray? All right, well, got to get up today. Mother homeschooling day. We're going to be very busy. Got to get the children. Got to do this. Got to do that. Do you drop to your knees in the bathroom for two minutes and lock the children out and say, Oh God, pour out your Spirit upon me today that I might guide these children to thy glory. Help me. I'm out of time. Amen.
as they're pounding on the door. Pray. Pray. Well, I'm busy. Then get unbusy. At least unbusy enough to pray. While your husband must pray for you, and often the only time you have, especially you mothers with young children, have in the Word is the time when your own husband sits and reads it to you. Make sure that you pray. Well, we need to bring this to an end. But we'll bring it to an end this way. You'll notice that Proverbs 2, 1 through 5 ends with, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hid treasures, then shalt thou understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Then, then. But you see, all those verbs come before the then. Receive, hide, incline, apply, cry, and lift up your voice in prayer. Seek and search. And we've got no better example than Mary and Martha. Luke 10, verse 38. Now it came to pass as they went that he entered into a certain village and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about much serving and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things. But one thing is needful. And Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Lord, go rebuke my sister, because she's in here at the Bible study, and I'm in here slaving over all the food. And the Lord said, she found the best part. Now, we're going to look at that passage later in detail. I close with it this evening because Mary exemplifies the last of these two verses in Proverbs 2. She sought the Lord. She sat at His feet. And when rebuked for that, the Lord defended her. Now, this doesn't mean, ladies, that you let the house go to pot. You let the children run around for days in dirty diapers. You don't wash them because you're being so holy. Yes, don't bother me. I'm praying. There has to be a right and a good balance. But I fear far too often, as some of you sisters, with your great hearts, desire to be the virtuous woman and to, to do all these things that this industrious woman is doing. You miss the best part. All this should flow from the fear of the Lord. Know your Christ. Know His grace. Know His voice. Know His love. Know what He has done for thee. And that He has called you to Himself. And He won't reprove you 
for desiring to sit at His feet. Hear Him. Hear Him. Hear Him. And then let that permeate every bit of your life. Walk in the fear of the Lord. And you will be praised. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what great and mighty things these are. And I do pray for every one of these sisters. Father, I bless Thee that Thou hast put among these women some of the most hard-working, devoted and loyal women that I have known over the years. I pray with all of my heart that they will not be caught up as Martha and be troubled with many things that might keep them from sitting at Christ's feet. Oh, bless them. Strengthen them. May we as husbands and may we as fathers for our daughters learn to encourage provide, and to protect them that they might find that time to sit at Thy feet, to know Thee in prayer, and to do all that they do in the fear of the Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, 
and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.